Welcome to Eurodoll University with Jeff Snyder. My name is Emil Kalinowski, and we're going to be talking, discussing, and investigating whether or not the hottest topic in macroeconomics, Zoltan Pozar's Bretton Woods 3, has any foundation to it. What does Jeff think about the claims that the U.S. dollar's days are numbered, U.S. treasuries will be losing value, and that we are moving towards a new commodity-based monetary order? We're going back to the future, going back to something like what we had in Bretton Woods. Jeff, you're the head of global research for Alhambra Partners. And this time, we will not be going over something that you've written. We're going to be going over Zoltan's work. Now, ladies and gentlemen, if you want to read Zoltan's work, you have to be a client of Credit Suisse because this is proprietary. You should not have access to this if you're not a client of Credit Suisse. It should not be littered across the internet where you can't swing a stick and not hit this on Zero Hedge, George Gammon, who else is talking about it? Lynn Alden, Michael Pettis, Odd Lots. You can find this nowhere because it's proprietary. Okay, ladies and gentlemen. Well, let's set the scene. We're going to talk about what Zoltan's thesis is, but here's the title of his piece. I was told. I don't know. Money, Commodities, and Bretton Woods 3. Jeff? What was Bretton Woods 1, very quickly? Well, you know, Emil, before we get started with that, I, I'm going to ask you to indulge me here, because I would like to tell a story from the 1930s to really set the scene so that we can more properly analyze what this other story is going to be. Fascinating. So we're going to go back before Bretton Woods number 1, the actual Bretton Woods. We can talk about how there was never Bretton Woods 2, so, and all the other errors that Zolta makes from there. <laughs> but let's, let's start with. 1937. It's August 1937, New York City. We have a guy by the name of George Leslie Harrison. Now, who the hell is George Leslie Harrison? George Leslie Harrison was the president of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, and he had been president of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York ever since the late 1920s when Benjamin Strong had died. So he had navigated the Great Depression as head of the Federal Reserve's most powerful and most important branch. So you can already see where we're going here. This is a guy who was essentially the 1930s equivalent of Ben Bernanke. But in fact, George Harrison was actually, I don't want to say a little bit better, but maybe a little more attuned than Bernanke ever was, because at least in 1929, especially 1930, Harrison had argued for the Fed to do much, much more than what it was doing at the time, which was zilch, nada. They just kind of let the system, the monetary system, fall apart. Whereas Harrison said, no, we should be buying bonds and raising the level of bank reserves, essentially arguing what would have been the second instance of quantitative easing in the Fed's early history. Now, whether or not that would have worked, that's not really a point of our story. But Mr. Harrison in the 19, early 1930s, head of Federal Reserve Bank of New York, said things are going wrong. The Fed is just the institution to fix it. So let's fast forward to 1937, August 1937. We talked about it in a previous episode last week where throughout the middle 1930s, after FDR had revalued gold, massive gold inflows into the United States, which because gold was now illegal, ended up in the hands of the Treasury, which then was given to the Federal Reserve, and essentially creating all these bank reserves. Basically an involuntary and inadvertent form of quantitative easing, where gold inflows produced lots of bank reserves. By 1935, 1936, the Fed, as you recall, started to worry about inflation, so they said, we got to lock up these bank reserves. They're going to raise the reserve requirement, which they did starting in early 1937. Fast forward to August of 1937, where everybody's now talking about 
bank reserves and the higher reserve requirements because already by then, unbeknownst to Mr. Harrison and all the rest of the Federal Reserve, the U.S. economy had already fallen into a deep depression, but these people were still convincing themselves there would be nothing of the sort. So what they're specifically debating, this is August 17th, 1937, and this is the official correspondence of Mr. George Leslie Harrison from his personal collection that my lovely wife, Jennifer, actually flagged for me because you actually can't read Mr. Harrison's private papers unless you get permission from Columbia University. But like Zoltan's research, there are various things floating around the internet that you can actually find. So here's the, the personal correspondence from Mr. Harrison, August 17th, 1937, where he says, we get the guy's breakfast that day, we get who he's talking to, where he walked to work, pretty much the whole details here. But the point is, he has a discussion with a guy by the name of Mariner Eccles, which, I mean, the name of the Federal Reserve Building is named after that guy. So he, he would become a pretty important person in the story. So he's got a, a meeting with Eccles, a guy by the name of Rolfs, which I don't know, and Alan Spruill, who would become the Federal Reserve Bank of New York president after Mr. Harrison left in 1940. The issue that was on their minds that day in August 1937 was the fact that after raising the reserve requirement, what would happen is that by the time we got to the end of 1937, there are seasonal variations in currency because of a number of things. We've got the agricultural, the, the flows of goods and uh, money overseas and back into the interior. You also have the Christmas shopping holiday, which by and large, even back then, there was a higher need for cash in the public hands during Christmas shopping because people like to buy Christmas presents and goods in the real economy. So they were forecasting in August 1937 that after raising the reserve requirement, that it could become kind of an issue later on in the year because excess reserves, now with a higher reserve requirement, there were fewer excess reserves, excess reserves could actually fall below a very low threshold and maybe even could get closer to zero. And that's what they were talking about. Mr. Eccles said that it was likely that excess reserves in the country might go down below 300 million before Christmas, and that it was not impossible that excess reserves might pretty well be wiped out in New York in the face of this possibility. And they said, well, is this really going to be a problem? Because throughout the 1930s, banks had grown pretty comfortable with all these excess reserves. And having locked up so many of these excess reserves, the higher reserve requirement, what were banks going to do if excess reserves actually did decline? And here's Harrison's response. The excess reserves had been reduced deliberately by the Boards Act, increasing reserve requirements, and that there was no reason now to be concerned merely because we were facing the natural consequences of that action. In other words, this is what we meant to do. We meant to lower the level of reserves so that it never become inflationary. But this presented a liquidity issue for the banking system to confront which is kind of why they were discussing it, that we had a Federal Reserve system and Federal Reserve banks ready to make loans and that I thought it would be better the quicker the board and perhaps some of the banks got out of the frame of mind that we must now always have excess reserve. I, meaning George Harrison, much preferred to see the system function again as a system and to have banks borrow and to show bills at the window. I was confident that if New York money market got to a point where excess reserves were pretty well wiped out, and funds were short, that the principal banks in New York would be willing to borrow from the Federal Reserve rather than to force liquidation of their governments, particularly their long-term government. Now, this is actually something that Milton Friedman talked about in A Monetary History in an episode there. And I think his comments, picking up from this part in August 1937, will finish out our little story here. So Harrison said, we're facing a shortfall of excess reserves in the future. I don't think it's going to be a problem because we're the Fed. We've got this covered. 
And in the executive board meeting of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, a little bit over a week later, this is now August 26, 1937, Mr. Harrison, who is the president of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, was confronted by a guy by the name of G.W. Davison, who was also on the board of directors of FRBNY, but was also a banker. And what Milton Friedman records in his book about this meeting was Mr. Davison reacting with shock and horror at Mr. Harrison's suggestions here. Because, as it says here, Mr. Davison was shocked by Mr. Harrison's resume of the reviews of the New York bankers because it differed so materially from his own impressions gained from contacts within certain of the bankers. To sum it up, the bankers told him to go stuff himself. They're not going to let themselves be run down in excess reserve, to let their liquidity margins go so low, and that they were going to take proactive action in anticipation of it. And the reason they were, and this is where I want to use Milton Friedman's own quote to finish out our story. And remember, Milton Friedman was a friend of the Fed. Yes, he was very honest and open about criticizing them in the 1930s, but he really wanted to see these people and wanted to see the institution succeed. And so his remark about this particular episode, I think, is particularly interesting. Throughout the high level of the discount rate relative to market rates reinforced the bank's reluctance bred on their 1929-33 experience to rely on borrowing from the Federal Reserve Banks for liquidity and led them instead to rely on cash reserves in excess of the legal requirements and on short-term security. So what are we saying? Here? What is the moral of the story? The moral of the story is the Fed thought bank reserves were going to be inflationary. They were not. The Fed thought that they were going to raise the reserve requirement and it wouldn't be a big deal to the banking system because the banking system now had this new Fed that was going to be proficient and effective in managing the system's liquidity. The bank said, AF, are you, what is the acronym? Are you kidding me? The banking system said, are you freaking kidding me? We don't trust you, Fed. We don't trust anything about you. And so you're going to raise the reserve requirement. You're going to present us with this opportunity or this actual, you know, this problem of a seasonal low in liquidity. We're going to have to be proactive about it. And so throughout the early part of 1937, even before August, banks had begun selling their short-term securities in order to raise cash that they could have available in their vaults, as well as drew down massive amounts of interbank deposit balances, essentially really brought all their liquidity home simply because they knew they could not rely on the Federal Reserve for systemic liquidity. Liquidity in the 1930s throughout the entire decade was a matter for banks to decide, not the Federal Reserve, because there was this level of distrust. It didn't matter what the Fed did, didn't matter what the Fed, you know, what laws were, were, were enacted to reconstitute how the system would behave. It didn't matter how many times the Fed said, yeah, we kind of screwed up here. We promised to be better. The banking system did not trust the Federal Reserve because, of course, they wouldn't. The Fed had proved time and again they should not be trusted. How do we segue that to Pozar? What is Mr. Pozar arguing here? Before we get into all that Bretton Woods nonsense, what he's essentially saying is that around the world, especially in the wake of 1997's Asian financial crisis, reserve managers have gotten into the habit of holding a lot of reserve assets, particularly U.S. Treasury. And they've done so because they realize, hey, this private Eurodollar system, and it's, I'm glad Zoltan finally used the term Eurodollar for once. It's like, welcome to the party, pal. But what, he, what he's saying is essentially that 
reserve managers realized they needed to hold lots of liquid assets to get a little bit of an earnings and a little bit of an interest rate while holding liquid reserves, very much like banks in the 1930s, because they couldn't rely on the euro dollar system all the time. And that, in fact, when uh, the system presented these dollar shortages, whether it be regional or global, that it made banks face very grave, dire potential. Bear Stearns, AIG, any number of Japanese banks in 97 and 98. So, Lots of reserves. What Bolton is now arguing is that, number one, why would they want to hold U.S. Treasuries as reserves? Because they're about to plummet in value. And number two, more importantly, they don't need to because the Fed has got you covered. The Fed has got FEMA, and I mean FEMA, F-I-M-A. They've got overseas dollar swaps. So these reserve managers that have raised their liquidity profile by holding liquid U.S. Treasuries don't need to do it because Uncle Fed has got you covered with its program. So I hope you can understand why I wanted to lead with our story from the 1930s, because the banking system is essentially saying, are you kidding me? <laughs> because Zoltan is a government guy. He's sort of a Fed guy because he came through that and he views everything as exactly George Leslie Harrison did. What he's saying is that the government has got it covered, and I would like to see the rest of the system go back to the way it should be, which is fed here, everybody else below it. And what the system is saying, no, we don't trust you because why the hell would we? The last 15 years have proved repeatedly, you people have no idea what the hell you're talking about. So you want us to sell our treasuries because you think there's no reason for it for the, to hold on to them to their bad reserve asset? Sorry, it, it's not happening. And even in his proprietary research piece that I certainly haven't read, he mentions how the market and its curve inversion has absolutely flummoxed him. Say, what did he say? The, the curve has gone insane. He shorted. No. Yes, that's right. No. What has happened is, again, Zoltan is George Leslie Harrison looking at the system from his own perspective, which is not the same thing as the perspective of the actual monetary system. Hold that thought. <laughs> Let's step back. Let's set the foundation first. Bretton Woods, that was a post-World War II, not literally post-World War II. It was 1944. We all went to New Hampshire. We met at the Bretton Woods Hotel. We had John Maynard Keynes there. Harry Dexter White, is that the right yep. person, Jeff? He was representing the U.S. And Soviet Russia. And it was agreed. <laughs> oh, yeah? All right. Well, God, we have to save that for another show. Yeah, well, he's, he was a communist at the time, and he... Found out to be later. Son of a bitch. Okay, fascinating. And so they met and they came up with a new monetary order, one in which would be based on the U.S. dollar being backed by gold and then other exchange rates being based on the U.S. dollar. So it was an indirect link to gold. Private citizens weren't allowed to own gold in the United States, and I don't know about the rest of the world, but I imagine it was very, very difficult to exchange your gold for the currencies or demand the currency pay out in gold around the rest of the world. So it was a government-based international system. That was Bretton Woods 1, 1944. Let's say it started implemented a few years after. I want to interrupt here, Mail, and I apologize, but I think this is another big misconception that we tried to clear up, but we didn't do it explicitly in our last episode on the petrodollar. Everybody has this impression that Bretton Woods meant we went from a private commodity-based monetary system, which was actual physical gold in everybody's pocket that they used, 
And then FDR came along, confiscated all that money, and we went from private money to government money. That wasn't true. And in fact, that's the other moral of the story that I just told you, which was that no, private money still existed and private money still predominated. It's just that it was private bank money, not private citizen money. And so we didn't go from private commodity money to government money. We went from private, widely dispersed individual holdings of commodity money to private ledger bank money. And then the euro dollar was simply the next step in the evolution where it got rid of all reserves and just said totally private ledger reserveless bank money, not government, private bank money. And so the banking system in 1930s was telling the Fed, we don't trust you. And the euro dollar was simply the next step in that evolution away from centralized authority. So even while Bretton Woods won, was in supposedly working, it actually was not working, as witnessed in the, especially in the latter half of the 1950s when the U.S. lost, what was it, two-thirds of its gold reserve? Some major proportion of its gold reserve simply because Bretton Woods had already been undermined by euro-dollar liquidity. As we said in that petrodollar episode, even the, I hate to use the term, but even the morons at the Fed in the early 1960s had to realize that there was that, that quote that we said, you know, that, boy, all these dollars outside the United States, it provided the level of liquidity that the world actually needed. And that was really the point of the euro dollar introduction in the first Bretton Woods era was because the euro dollar as a private bank centered ledger money system could do the role of reserve currency that Bretton Woods could not. None of that is covered in Zoltan's pieces, at least the two that I read. It goes from Bretton Woods number one to Bretton Woods number two. At no Which point is, do we... <laughs> that's what we're really saying here. There was no Bretton Woods number two. So again, already he's making the same error that a lot of people make, which was that August 1971 represented some hard stop in the prior system. And what we're saying here, going all the way back to the 1930s, is that Bretton Woods one was more like Bretton Woods fuzzy. And it really wasn't Bretton Woods 1. And Bretton Woods 1 didn't end in 1971. It kind of just slowly faded away, became more and more problematic throughout the late 50s and into the 1960s. I mean, you had the gold, London gold pool. You had the two-tiered structure, price of gold in the late 60s. So Bretton Woods, Bretton Woods 1 just kind of faded out. And it was not replaced by a Bretton Woods 2. It was already undermined and replaced by euro dollar. Yeah, that's right. It was disintegrating. It's from the 1950s, the London Gold Pool, 1960, the London Gold Pool breakup, 1968, price control, 71, 73, delinking. Petrodollar comes in at that point very briefly in this story. But Jeff, tell me if you got, we still haven't defined Bretton Woods too, which I want to do. And I heard, uh, I heard Zoltan on the Odd Lots podcast on April 7th for the audience, if they want to hear that. It was an hour long podcast. And on that episode, it seemed to me like he was linking Bretton Woods 2 to be the post-1971, 73 time period. But in these pieces here, he says Bretton Woods 2 was 2000 to 2010, and he defines it as uh, just the stability of G7 money, just a floating rate, stable currencies, the reserve currencies of the world. 
You know what he really linked it to, which is really, I think, for us and a regular viewers of the show are going to laugh and going to shake their heads. He actually linked it to Ben Bernanke's Global Savings Club. Mm-hmm. And he uses that term, the global savings clock country, which already, just like Bretton Woods too, global savings clock, red flags are going up all over the place. The point that I'm trying to make here is, again, to reinforce this notion, the Zoltan is looking at the monetary system from the perspective of somebody in the Fed or somebody in the government, because he worked at the Treasury Department's Office of Financial Research for a very long time. He did a lot of good work there on shadow banking, but he did no work on shadow money. So what we're really saying here is he has a very skewed view of the system because of because, of course, he would, because that's where he came from. And because of the history of that system and the performance of that system, not just over the last 15 years, but up to that point, you can understand why he's making these errors, because he doesn't see the monetary system as it actually is. He's George Leslie Harrison saying, well, we're the Fed. Of course, we're going to force Of course, we're going to perform well because we think we always perform well, even though we just went through a period of massive monetary disruption. Well, we've learned our lesson because we tell you we've learned our lesson. He's not looking at the monetary system as G.W. Davison did, which was as a banker, as actual private money, bank money. No, we don't trust the Fed. We have this other system that's out there operating. We don't think you really know what's going on. And so. The more Zoltan uses these terms like global savings block, like, you know, Bretton Woods 2, these kinds of things are red flags that he's looking at the system from a very different and less effective perspective. Bretton Woods 2, what have we defined it? I would say it's kind of the great moderation. It's the centrality of the central banks providing price stability, whether it started in the 1970s or after the 2000s. That is, I would say, the thesis. And then we segued into kind of a Bretton Woods 2.5 in 2010, where it was represented, he says, by QE and Basel 3. But still, the idea, Jeff, do you agree? This is my interpretation. Bretton Woods 2 is price stability, centrality of central bankers, them coming in. You've raised the Asian financial crisis a couple of times now. Them coming in and fixing, saving the system when it gets out of whack. And he lists several episodes. We don't have to get into it. Yeah, but you know, what's interesting about that is if the episodes he did not list, where was 2014 and 2015? He just kind of skipped yeah. right over that, even though, even though right. that was the period when the foreigners, particularly China, sold the most U.S. treasuries in human history. Now, why would he skip over that episode? Because it doesn't fit within his bank-centered, bank-reserve-centered paradigm. You're exactly right, Emil. The way you're describing what he's describing is essentially the Fed, the central banks around the world at the center of everything. Uh, don't really explain why the system broke down, except maybe it was a credit event, which we all know it wasn't. The Fed comes right, in with, right. with quantitative easing. Other central banks do their own quantitative easing. Now we have this era of abundant bank reserves, which means for Zoltan and everybody else, listening to this worldview, there's plenty of money out there. So obviously I can't explain what happened in 2014 and 2015 because the Fed had just done QE3 and QE4. Bank reserves were the highest they've ever been. So how can we explain why Chinese were selling a trillion dollars worth of reserve assets other than a monetary shortage, which can't be because this Fed is central and central bank and bank reserves are the only thing that matter. 
nowadays. So again, we're getting back to George Leslie Harrison. His view of how the system has evolved since the crisis is like Harrison's, just flat wrong. He has this perspective that doesn't allow him to see that this private money system is not behaving nor acting, nor does it work in the fashion in which he says it does. So if the system isn't the way he says it is, then how are we supposed to believe it's going to evolve into the way he says it should be? We're going to talk about what Bretton Woods 3 is, ladies and gentlemen. But Jeff, let me just follow back on that point. I agree. When I was reading that, I was thinking, where's the European sovereign debt crisis? He mentions it briefly. Yeah, briefly. He doesn't really go over it. Yeah, it's maybe that it was just a GFC follow-on kind of. I think what he alluded to or hinted at was that it was another credit crisis. When in fact, it wasn't a re... And that's the other thing here. Zoltan, because of his position, because of his background, he focuses exclusively on bank reserve, takes no account of collateral, no account of derivatives, currency swaps, and things like that. He doesn't understand the use of these things as how, how deeply important, how deeply they're embedded to the liquidity of the, the functioning, just the raw functioning of the, the entire global monetary, the euro dollar system as a whole. It's not central banks in the middle of all of these mar- or all of the, the economies in this monetary system. It's repo. It's Forex derivatives. That's the real stuff here. And the euro dollar event number four, when did it begin, according to Zoltan? September, September 2019. 2019. Yeah. And I know so you, you, there's a whole year yeah. or two. You shook your head as much as I did, Emil. I know because you're reading that and you're like, wait a minute, he's skipping over all of these other things because he has to. Two years. Yeah. Jeff, if we were specific, that's two years where euro dollar four was beginning, escalating, accelerating. But no, it began on the 19th. Well, yeah, 19th, September 2019. Okay. Which again, I mean, you know, and then his view of September 2019 itself is, oh, there wasn't enough bank reserves. So we have to find the systemic level of bank reserves, which is, I mean, even if you agree with that, it still undermines his premise, which is that the marketplace, the global marketplace, should just trust the Fed. Even though we have this episode in 2019 that says, even if you believe the Fed is, well, the Fed cut reserves too much and then they left the system high and dry. So even if you believe in bank reserves, it undermines the case that we should have, we should trust the Fed. So we had something bad happen that then the Fed had to come in and then do its not QE5 in order to try to fix what was the systemic level of bank reserves. So even if you do believe that the Fed is that important, even if you do believe bank reserves are that important, here's another screw up that undermines the case of let's just throw everything, let's throw caution to the wind and believe in FEMA and overseas dollar swaps. Okay, Bretton Woods 1, gold links. Bretton Woods 2, a price stability guaranteed, enforced by G7 Central Bank Reserve Currency Advanced Money Centers, who have repeatedly, according to these crises, come in and saved the system. That's Bretton Woods 2. And now Bretton Woods 3, his analysis is basically this very nice economist article does a great job. We've got oil linked to missile carrying shooting trucks. I think that's a minivan with a rocket launcher attached to the top of it. So this is the future. It's based not on central banks, but on geopolitics and commodities. It's not on foreign exchange reserve, U.S. treasuries, U.S. dollars. We are transitioning towards a commodity-linked base, and then we're going to talk about the Chinese currency future. 
But Jeff, maybe this is where we disagree. My interpretation is that we are entering, that of what Sultan is saying, is that we are entering a time where we can no longer count on the Federal Reserve because we are now, the problem is now commodities. And he makes it a point to say, we can't print oil, wheat, we can't print the ships, we can't print the trains that are required to move everything around the world. It's going to be a lot more difficult to move these products around the world, which are necessary, required. And how are we going to do that? We're going to need more financing because before we built a system that was based on much shorter delivery times, smaller ships, whatever it happens to be, does a nice job of explaining how oil can't be moved from Russia to China very easily because of different ship sizes and so forth. Very nice. And then he makes an analogy that says, well, before we needed this much financing for the products, for the ships. Now we're going to need this much, much more. And that's going to use up bank balance sheet capacity, which I thought, wow, Jeff Snyder, he's channeling him. If it's going to use a bank balance sheet capacity to move these products around, the banks need to find bank balance sheet capacity. They're going to have to get rid of some things. They're going to favor, prioritize the moving of these products over some things that are less important. And I'm thinking U.S. Treasuries and so forth. Jeff, that general framework, is that what you understood as well? That's the point where we get into FEMA and overseas dollar swaps. What he's saying is that it's okay for banks to dispose of their treasury because they won't need that form of liquidity, which takes up balance sheet capacity. They don't need that liquidity because Uncle Fed, Uncle Jay has got, got everybody's back. So reserve managers don't need treasuries. The banking system doesn't need treasuries because that's just taking up wasted space that could be used, but that could be better purposed to meet the realities of today. Now, I know you looked at it the same way I did, which was, why don't banks just expand their balance sheet? Because right, that's right. kind of what they question. used to do. In fact, they used to do it so much, it got to be too much. And so again, yes. he's looking at the system backwards. He's looking at everything backwards. Instead of saying, how do we proportion scarce balance sheet? How do we get banks to grow their balance sheet like they used to? And one of the reasons they don't is because they're holding so much liquidity in liquid instruments because they don't trust the, the monetary system, because they don't trust central banks around the world to be the, the, the backstop that Zoltan describes them to be, because the banking system has a very different view of history and money reality than people at the Fed or people in the government do. And so our central point remains. Zoltan is George Leslie Harrison saying, we should be able to do this when the banking system is saying, are you kidding me? Because that's not how it works. You want us to ditch our treasury and our liquid assets and just trust in the Fed? Ain't happening, pal. I'm reading a section here of a very proprietary report that has nothing to do with our show that says something along the lines of that because this financing will be required that won't be good news for treasuries on the eve of QT. Let's not worry about the QT part of Jeff, but basically. Well, that's, you know, Emil, that's kind of the last point here is that if you somehow accidentally stumble across Zoltan's research over ever since he moved to Credit Suisse, it always ends with that premise. Everything yes. is about how the treasury market is about to blow up how the dollar is about to crash and be replaced and everything that follows. From, I mean, we discussed, I believe, on the show or maybe not, maybe predated the show, 
uh, his too many treasuries arguments that dealers were getting stuffed yeah. with treasuries in the wake of the Tax Cut and Jobs Act of 2019. And that was going to ruin the treasury market because banks couldn't absorb it. As it turned out, banks absorbed a fair amount of it and did so voluntarily because of collateral and liquidity reasons, but also hedge funds because there was this enormous basis trade that opened up and hedge funds that aren't really willing to take a lot of risk these days were looking for a leverage opportunity in safe and liquid instruments too. He never solves that part of the equation, which is why is everybody so focused on safety and liquidity? And why is that such a major problem that banks won't expand the, their balance sheets because they're so focused on? Again, here's your answer right here. Go back to 1937. Start reading what the bankers were telling you, not what the Federal Reserve was telling you. He foresees a world where now commodities are used instead, well, emphasized commodity reserves versus foreign exchange reserves. Yeah, he says he's what he said. I think what he's saying is more nuanced. He's not saying the euro dollar system is gone. He's just going to say yep. that's going to recede over time. We're going to transition to a commodity based system, which is, again, kind of laughable because you realize the reason we went to this direction is because it is cumbersome, inefficient to an extreme to settle any kind of reserve or money matter in a physical commodity, not to mention unpredictable and unreliable. So the idea that we're going to switch to a commodity-based monetary system is far-fetched, to put it kindly. Also, there's going to be less recycling of U.S. dollars and these treasuries because commodity producers will be dealing in other currencies. And he picks just one here, the renminbi, the yuan, the Chinese yuan. He sees that as being under linked to commodities. So it'll be the renminbi, China rising with commodities, replacing U.S. dollar, U.S. treasuries. Because why? And this is another article and it's titled The Big Short, I think. I don't know. I wouldn't know. It's allegedly titled that way. And some ideas he has here about what the consequences will be of Bretton Woods 3, including the U.S. dollar falling in value, at least relative to the renminbi, if not overall, U.S. treasuries going down in value because of a wave of inflation and interest rate hikes coming along. Yeah, it gets into the circular reasoning, right? Because why would reserve managers hold U.S. treasuries, these foreign reserve managers hold U.S. treasuries that are going to fall in value, which is going to force them to sell them because they can rely on the Fed for their liquidity, which means they're going to fall in value, which means they're going to sell them. I mean, it's just it's circular logic. If you believe that reserve managers don't believe in the liquidity profile of U.S. treasuries and those types of instruments, then this makes sense. But if you look at the system and the way the markets have behaved to somebody like Zoltan, where he says he's confused by the yield curve, he thinks the yield curve has gone insane. He doesn't get the idea that liquidity isn't what he says it is. It's what the system says it is. And the system is what's going to drive changes here, not commodities or China or anybody else. Yes, he says the yield curve has gone mad. He says to short the curve inversion. He also lists some U.S. dollar pegs. I'm guessing the renminbi, which he thinks will appreciate in value. And that is in strong contradistinction to Russell Napier, who says that they are leveraged to the hilt or levered up, as the British like to say, and that they are facing a terrible deflationary extinguishing a void if they raise their currency while they're so levered up. They need inflation to burn away that debt. So he's in strong disagreement there. 
another person who's in strong disagreement with Mr. Zoltan, besides yourself and at least Russell Napier on that one point, is Michael Pettis. Michael Pettis, who's a professor in a famous, well-known Chinese university, historian, book author, economist, and recently at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace on his blog, China Financial Markets, he wrote a piece that was posted on the 12th of April, changing the top global currency means changing patterns of global trade. Sounds very anodyne, Jeff, right? Like, well, this and this and this. He came out and said some very strong words, including, I'm paraphrasing right now, but basically no chance and not going to happen. And there's one line here. Jeff, if you have something to say, go ahead and say it while I look for this incredible line. Well, I was going to say, you know, if if the the importance of renminbi in this commodity base, then the March... The March trade and import figures from China don't do much toward that uh, toward advancing that cause, especially if you look at something like coal. Coal imports into China collapsed by 40 percent because the Chinese government is trying to encourage more domestic sources of coal. And it isn't just coal. I mean, imports overall in China fell, actually, a tiny fraction. They actually declined despite massive price increases last month, which is indicative of not a strong China about to re- rewire the world in its own image, but rather a weak China trying to hold on dearly, uh, which I think is why Shanghai is locked down right now, why Xi continues to pursue his zero COVID insanity, simply because he's flexing his internal muscle and saying, I don't allow for dissent here, including dissent on a, an economy continuing to fall off, not get better. I uh, highlighted the Hades out of this report, but of course I didn't highlight the most important part here that I wanted to read out to everyone. Thankfully, I did put it out on Twitter and I'm looking for it now. Okay, here it is. Are you yep. ready for this, Jeff? Shush. This is straight fire from a calm individual. By the way, uh, fronts rock bands in China, so maybe he's not that calm, but it, that's it. Yeah, his day job is professor of finance and economic history. At night, he fronts rock bands. Very cool. Okay. Quote, for all the uninformed and excited discussions about the foreign antagonists forcing the U.S. dollar to lose its global dominance, this will never happen. And then he lists some reasons. No other country, including none of the country's antagonists, is willing to take on the exorbitant burden. That's a huge one. And I don't think people understand that either. The Chinese actually tried to do this. They created an offshore euro yuan, if you want to call it that, an offshore market in Hong Kong, but they never let it go. They were unwilling to let the yuan do what it needs to do in order to be a legitimate reserve currency. And I think that's that's maybe the overriding topic here is that people, including Mr. Pauser, don't seem to understand how a reserve currency actually works. He understands really well how bank reserves from the Fed get traded throughout the system. But that's since that's such a narrow slice of what actually happens in the reserve currency system, it's no wonder he keeps going off in these other directions, pursuing white rabbits and white elephants that aren't really realistic. This doesn't make us national chauvinists either. We're not arguing that the dollar is the best. What you and I argue, Emil, if if you allow me to put words in your mouth, is that There just isn't any realistic alternative. And Zoltan's idea of ditching treasuries for commodities is even less realistic than some of the others that have been brought up because it misunderstands everything from the foundation on up. 
Pettis addresses commodities in his article by saying why it wouldn't make any sense to use them as reserves for commodity exporters. No, it wouldn't. It would make no sense whatsoever. For commodity exporters, he said it would only amplify their, it would be pro-cyclical. Yes. Because the commodities would be worth the most when you need them less, right? So the exporter, Russia, Saudi Arabia, Iran, Venezuela, whoever, they have these reserves of commodities. They're worth a ton. Going is good. You don't need them to be worth a ton. But when would they be worth very little is exactly when you would need them. When commodity prices are low, that's when your economy would be struggling. So it would be pro-cyclical. I think that's one of the underpinning assumptions because, again, what they're saying is U.S. treasuries are going to lose value and commodities are only going to gain value because they believe this is a structural or secular inflationary mm. environment, which... Again, history shows you otherwise. Listen to what's going on in the system. The yield curve isn't mad. It's sending you a very profound signal. If you don't like the message, you know, facts don't care about your feelings. He addresses China as well. He says that it's sort of the reverse for China because it's heavily consuming commodities. And if they use commodities as reserves, more expensive. they would be in the same pro-cyclical basis. Exactly. So... When China's doing well, commodities should be up and high in price because China's consuming so many of them. So why would you need foreign reserves, so many of them at that point? When China's doing poorly, when the economy is lousy, commodities should be lower in value because the biggest end user's not requiring them. And so then what would China be doing with reserves whose value is falling? And so he made the point that this is pro-cyclical not at all what you want from reserves, which should be stable to uh, reverse cyclical. And again, there's so much of this that it's just backward. You know, the idea of the Global Savings Club, for example, to go back to that for a moment, they've got that backward. Yes. It wasn't as if reserve manager style started piling reserves. What happened was the euro dollar system exploded and expanded. And a lot of a lot of that euro dollar resources got found its way into the hands of official sector. So we have euro dollar expansion leading to reserve managers buying more reserve assets. Monetary expansion, more reserves. That's why Zoltan skips over 2014 and 2015 because we have euro dollar contraction and that led to reserve managers around the world mobilizing their treasuries because they're liquid assets that they wanted to use in times of trouble, which is exactly what they did. So the reserve system, at least in that respect, functioned the way it was supposed to when, let's, let's be clear here, the Federal Reserve was out to lunch during that entire episode. 2013, 2014, 2015, 2016, what was the Fed doing? Fed was looking ahead to inflation. The Fed was looking ahead to rate hikes. And all of these countries around the world are like, we gotta sell hundreds of billions in treasures because we're, we're witnessing a dollar shortage of proportions that was sort of like 2008. And that's not really something you should skip over because it's inconvenient to the view you want to make. Two more points from uh, Michael Pettis that I okay. want to raise that simply suggest that uh, Bretton Woods 3, such as described, is not going to happen. In fact, he used the word never. So we were just discussed point number one. Point number two, he said, is that money is a coward and it's not going to be. Uh, seeking a home with countries where you don't have flexible, open exchange rates, monetary policy, where you're not discriminated against as a foreigner. Quote, 
The world uses the dollar because the U.S. has the deepest and most flexible financial markets, the clearest and most transparent corporate governance, and, in spite of some recent sanctions, the least amount of discrimination between domestic residents and foreigners. Compare that to Russia, Saudi Arabia, Iran, Venezuela, North Korea, Canada. No, I just, that was just for a joke. And China, where we obviously don't have that. So would you be putting your money into a country such as China, where they just lock down Shanghai for unknown reasons? You know, what are the chances they're going to lock down your money that way? You don't have the confidence that they're going to do the same, that they won't do the same. You know, Emil, that's one reason why the offshore yuan never really took off. Pozar responded to this explicitly in his April 7th appearance on Odlots and said he equated the Russian sanction against, against Russia. He didn't mention the Canadian action against people's bank accounts, but let's put them all in the same group. He equated that action to the general behavior, general political governance system that we see in other countries such as China. So he equated the two and he said, well, you know, what's the difference between the two? Point number three, Jeff, from Pettis saying why this will never happen, Bretton Woods three, is that it would cost, it would be an exorbitant burden for Germany, Japan, and China who are benefiting tremendously from having economies that are based on much more demand than they can internally support. Basically, their export system are based on the idea of sending their savings into the United States, forcing a, a trade deficit onto the United States. And should we go to some sort of commodity-based system, these sort of trade imbalances would not be possible. They would not be persistent. And the resulting actions would be terrible for the employment credit or, yeah, the employment credit, one more other reason, in China, in Germany, in Japan. And he writes that that's the reason why we haven't seen countries really pursue or welcome huge foreign exchange inflows other than the Anglophone uh, countries. Jeff, that's it for me. Yeah, I think that's, you know, why is the euro dollar still here? Because the euro dollar's purpose is to mediate financial and, and uh, merchandise flows, like you just mentioned from Mr. Pettis. And it does so even, in, even though it doesn't really work as well as it used to, it still continues to allow the system, the global system, to at least keep the lights on. How it actually does this, as you know, I think you mentioned from Mr. Pettis' work, deep, sophisticated, widespread availability, financial markets, uh, all those kinds of things. That's what you need to have for a global reserve currency. You can't just flip a switch and say, oh, Chinese yuan is going to be the new global reserve. How does the yuan mediate uh, currencies all, all around the world? Yeah, it's easy on a bilateral basis, but bilateral is inefficient, much more inefficient than what the euro dollar does. And so if you're Germany or Japan or somebody else, you're going to stick with even a difficult euro dollar than you are going to go to something else that is, I mean, to me, it's, it's just comically bad. The idea that you're going to use commodities as a reserve asset in uh, a global monetary system is, I mean, modern industrial human history moved away from commodities for, the, for various reasons that are all showing up right now. My last recommendation for the audience, if they wanted to hear even more, they can listen to Jeff and my favorite podcast, The Rebel Capitalist Show, George Gammon, episode 670 on April 6th. 
George did a whole hour review as well of Bretton Woods 3 and what Pozar is saying. Jeff, <laughs> woo! a nice breezy 15 minute yeah. episode. I love it. Amazing, right? You got to thank Mr. Pozar for at least sparking the discussion. And it's a good discussion to have because, as we keep saying, we need to talk about the monetary system, but let's do so in a realistic fashion. Let's do so from the proper perspective that incorporates more than just fed in the middle. 